people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Dokonce o deset minut přesnější. Ty jsi ale sloustle. Taky už nejsi nejmladší. Nevadí. Jíst budeme, doufám, hned. Hm? To víš, nemám nikoho, kdo by mi to zašíval. Žiju si sám a sám pro sebe. Já často sedím a přemýšlím. A jen tak? Sám pro sebe si přemýšlím. Nevím, jestli to můžeš pochopit. Sám pro sebe. Když přecházím, jen si léhnu, ale vždy, nebo téměř vždy, já přemýšlím. To já náhodou chápu? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Jonathan Owen. Hello. Good to be back. Also back in the booth is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello. We continue our Czech Timber coverage with Esther Krombakova's sole-credited role as director, Killing Mr. Devil, a.k.a. The Murder of Mr. Devil, a.k.a. Killing of Engineer Devil. I've seen that thrown around as well. Released in 1970, the film stars... Irina Badalova, a woman who is plagued by the self-centered Dr. Bohosh Devil, played by Vladimir Menchik. He's an apparent bachelor who wants nothing more than to eat her out of house and home in a series of vignettes where she feeds his mouth as well as his ego. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, please track down the movie and come back after you've seen it. Though the print I saw is in desperate need of a proper restoration. I'm not sure if the one that they showed on Criterion is better. Hopefully it is. And I also hope that there is a beautiful Blu-ray of this in our future. That would be really nice. Jonathan, when was the first time you saw this film and what did you think? I first saw it in 2015, I think. And I just saw it randomly. I wasn't sort of researching for anything in particular at the time. And it was something that I heard about for a long time but had always been difficult to see and when I finally saw it I think I was to be honest a bit confused by it I think I probably still am in some ways but I really enjoyed it it was and is an experience I think it's a sort of a visual and also like oral overload really and I think I was probably most struck by the performances I think you have two incredible performances at the heart of it by two really great 
comic and also dramatic actors. And of course, by the food as well. I think it is the ultimate Czech food film. <laughs> and Ken, how about yourself? And the same time as Jonathan saw it, actually, there must have been something in the air. <laughs> I think because it just played into my whole. So Esther Krumbakova, as Mike knows from the many commentaries that we've done, is a bit of an obsession of mine. And any excuse to bring her into anything, even if she didn't work on a film, I will. Because I've always felt like she was something of a kindred spirit. I don't know. I just feel a very strong spiritual connection to her. I think she was a fascinating figure in the Chetney way, very marginalised until Criterion picked up a rock this year and suddenly realised, oh, yeah, yeah, there was more than Vera Itlova in here. <laughs> But I'm glad. I'm glad she's getting more platforming now. And so, like Jonathan, I'd heard about the film, but it was quite hard to see. And around that time, I got the keys to the grey market kingdom that I'm not going to promote. <laughs> it's kind of like the art house version of another grey market place we're not supposed to talk about. And managed to actually get a fan sub copy of the film. Although I'm watching the one that we watch for this podcast i'm still wondering how accurate those subtitles are i feel like there's some stuff missing in here and i don't know if jonathan can elaborate but maybe wordplay or stuff like that it seems the subs that i saw are quite utilitarian i feel like we're not getting the whole picture but that was several years ago that i saw it and now i'm going to trigger some of mike's regular male listeners by saying now as a woman in perimenopause I feel like it's the perfect perimenopause film. And I looked up how old Krumbakova was when she made it, 47, so I'm 49. She was totally in that zone. I think it's wonderful. I think it's a complex film and one that might not immediately strike people as, as necessarily feminist. But I feel like feminism in Czech film, which is marginalised, is very different to what this bourgeois Western sense of feminism which is all about connection to the masculine and stuff like that. So there's loads of stuff, very subversive feminine stuff going on in this film that now that I'm slightly older, I appreciate even more. I think, I just think it is an incredibly subversive film, as subversive as Daisy's, but that might not be as apparent because of the central protagonist. And the last thing I'll say as my intro is it's got that thing that I love in film. Like I just love this in films where it's almost like a theatre and you just have two characters. I love that. Like Sleuth is another good example of that. When you just have two, and it's all on their dialogue. And and like Jonathan said, it's so perfectly performed because it's literally just two people in a room. And it's so good. It is so good. So, yeah, there's a lot to say about this one. I'll just issue that trigger warning, though. I know because I've upset some of Mike's listeners before talking about menstrual cycles. So we're doing the big M today. <laughs> yeah, this does play very much like a play. They never go outside. And when they go to locations apart from her apartment, it's shot in a really interesting way. I mean, this whole movie is shot in a very interesting way. But I love when they leave her apartment and you've got the fortune teller. I think we go to her twice. And then you've got the concert where it's all black masking in the back and you just have these people in weird positions. Like 
there, there are people that are talking to each other, like these men are kind of arguing with each other, and you've got our main character and her best friend, and they're just sitting there, and then you've got a, a four or five piece string section doing their stuff. And when you look at the two women together, it just goes back into infinity with the blackness and there's a couple people behind them. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's very, very stage like with this. And yeah, the performances are remarkable and she just made so many interesting choices all the way down to the opening credits where it's, I don't know, are these like rocks or are they like pieces of food, like spelling out the words i'm like even the credits are interesting to me in this movie and then you've got that great song that plays that talks about i'd rather have a snowman than no man it's just she's it sounds like the woman is desperate for companionship and then how that song really becomes the musical motif of the entire film and then comes back at the end i love it it's wonderful i just mentioned the color palette as well because with Krumbakova, she's often just credited as costume or whatever, and she was so much more than that. She didn't just do costume, she was actively involved with all the directors actually on set making these very complex decisions, and nothing was ever accidental with this woman. And the just the use of this very autumnal colour palette in the apartment and the opening scene where it's like, I don't know if this is just me reading into it, but it's like, is this a witch? Because she's reading out this thing that sounds like it could be a spell or it could be, alternatively, a cleaning manual. And the way that she cooks, the kitchen is very... So you see this same sense of, like, pagan anarchy that you see in Daisies that creeps in. I mean, Valerie is a staple of Krumbakova, this very natural... It's weird because it's supposed to be this... I guess a high-end condo apartment thing going on, but there's this big tree in the middle of the room, and and she's got a witch's kitchen. It's like oh, I want this, I want this apartment. This is just beautiful. And of course, she lets this man in. He starts ruining it and chewing her furniture up and complaining about her, her plants. And yeah, it's there's so much in that. So much of this, um, I think a thing that I constantly talk about in one of my podcasts, The Devil and Daughter, what they call the chthonic feminine, which not to go too off into a prop, but this this sense of, I guess, the wild woman, and that was Krumbakova to me. Kitty Lover, of course, those two together were just incredible, but I think Krumbakova had it even more. And you quite often see these palettes, all these plants, all these things creeping in. And here she just does it because she's got, I guess, all of the creative controls, the director, that she crafts this. I don't know. It's just so wonderful, all the colors. But then everything else is white. And, yeah. So watching it again, I was just looking at everything, every color, every detail, every texture, and thinking, what did? because she would have had a meaning for all of this. The connection with witches and the occult is is very much present and, as you say, I think that completely reflects her sensibility. And there's a, a story that's been given about her that apparently Krumbakova would claim that she had been a witch in a, in a previous life. And I think this this was very much key to her sensibility. And as you say, something that is there through her other films, if you think of like Valerie and A Week of Wonders, which apparently, according to some sources, she 
wrote the script for entirely, and I think Yuresh just signed his name too. But I guess that's the whole. It's her though. There's so much of her. I think <laughs> if you look at a lot of the films that she worked on, you can see these like like almost like alter themes that are hers creeping in. You can definitely see the influence, but she was rarely credited or just given the like script or, or costume or whatever. I mean, yet Niemex claims that Witch Hammer was more or less her film, that I think basically the script was hers and that she was absolutely central to it and that Vavra, the director, would just dismissively describe her as, you know, my designer, my costume designer. But there was so much more, I think, that she that she did. And I think it's very difficult to actually track the number of films that she worked on and what she did on them as well. I think it often exceeded, you know, far exceeded the role for which she was credited and... I feel in this case, I mean, this is, I think, as has been said before, this is like the culmination really of her work in that it brings together like all of tropes and all of her obsessions. And just practically speaking, in terms of what she did on it, I mean, from what I've read, she more or less did everything. I mean, she not only directed and, and wrote and designed the costumes and sets, it was also apparently her own furniture from her own apartment. And uh, she... She made the costumes, she cooked the food, apparently, she made the jewellery that you see. So, yeah, it's a complete one-woman show. And I think another interesting point was that I think she apparently modelled the look of the uh, of Odalhova, like her hairstyle, her costumes and everything. That was modelled on Krumbakova herself, so I think it was intended to be a, a self-portrait, really. Yeah, that is so wonderful, and it's so... Her, because she was a witch. She was an alchemist. I mean, she did do everything. It wasn't just costumes. She wrote fiction. She wrote scream. I mean, she I, she was such a an inspirational, marginalised person who even then after the normalisation when she was blacklisted, which is just heartbreaking, when you look at this film and you think that could have been the start of a directorial career. Instead, she gets completely locked out. She's secretly making jewellery for things like The Little Mermaid. And you look at those costumes and you can see the back of her. And, you know, to have that amount of creativity uh, is just, yeah. I, I think the film is a beautiful tribute to her in that way. You could say that there's a sort of a commentary there going on about the fact that, I mean, as a creative talent herself that I guess she was often perceived as kind of serving the male directors or the male artists and of course in this film the character is constantly serving the man and sort of deliberately underplaying her own intelligence I mean she she's saying you know, the best way to please a man is to basically just to pretend that you don't know anything and then she's oh yeah I've never heard of yeah Freud Nietzsche what's that who's that it's like <laughs> that's why it's the perfect perimenopause Film. And I've actually been reading this book very on brand recently, my ADHD podcast called The Heroine's Journey. And it's like this Jungian thing all about how women tend to separate from the feminine when they're younger. They start to look at the man's world and they try and validate the masculine. They want validation from the masculine. So they'll go about that in various ways. But it's all about how you exist to the masculine. So you might become hyper-feminine and servile, or you might try and be more aggressive like a man, or you might try and be the cool girl, I'm one of the guys. And it, this does play out, even though we feel we're very enlightened now, it still plays out now. You hit 45, 
And suddenly you realize what a load of fucking shit. Like these guys are useless. And this is a film because this guy, he doesn't want to love her. She's like this beautiful, sensual woman. And she makes this amazing food, which is obviously an extension of her sensuality and her creativity. She's got this beautiful apartment. And this guy just wants a mother. He wants a. You know, he's going on about his younger lover ripping him off and he just wants to be fed and he's an endless entitled hole and she starts to think, I, I've had enough of this. And I think a lot of women, or heteronormative women, I, I really, really envy lesbians for this reason because they probably don't have as much as this. But you kind of wake up one day and you think, what the hell have I been doing? And, of course, we're more conscious of it now. So we talk about mansplaining and we talk about the pick-me guys and all, all that sort of stuff. We have a language for it. But in 1970 Czechoslovakia, there was no language for this. Uh, they weren't even where, say, the New York feminists were having their consciousness raising. or They were in an entirely different thing where you were a comrade. So gender wasn't even, but yet. Weirdly, in an egalitarian system, you were still there to serve the man. And I started to think about that documentary on Kitty Lover. I, I'm pretty sure it's on the Daisy's disc. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think Second Run put it on that Daisy's disc, where Kitty Lover talked about her career and how she was supposed to be the director, but also the mother. So she was very... And she said she realised early on that she could weaponise her femininity. So she had to go before a board of men and they, she wasn't getting her own way. She would just cry because she knew it freaked them out. Like she would just manipulate them. And there's a lot of this going on in, in this film. There's a lot of, you think she's serving the man, but she's also trying to gain power in this situation. Then she, I guess, realises that power is limited and this guy is just going to keep take and take and take. You often hear guys say, oh, well, women have equality now. They have power. And it's like, do we? Oh, sex is power. You're not really, though, is it? <laughs> and she wants to get laid. This is the best thing. She is the one who wants to get laid. <laughs> yeah. Oh, she wants to get laid in the biggest way. And their relationship is so chaste that there's just a few kisses in there. And, it, and to get them hot they talk about food like that's when the kissing starts is when she starts talking about oh i'm I'm gonna roast you a goose and i'm gonna i'm gonna make mushrooms and i'm gonna have this liver pate i love the look when he when he eats that liver pate just takes that big scoop takes that big old spoonful and then just the look of just pure bliss on his face he's got that huge honking loaf of bread and he's just chopping off big pieces of that I mean, while I was watching it, oh, yes. While I was watching it, I did keep thinking about daisies and... And the spoons, the size of the spoons, the, the size of the spoon. She's got that tiny spoon. While I was watching this, I did keep thinking about daisies and just the food orgy in there because this movie is food orgy after food orgy. I mean, they're not spreading it around. They're not covering their bodies in it. But man, oh man, I love when... You get those head-on shots of him, and he's just eating, 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 and then the reverse shot, and she's barely has touched anything, and then back to him, and he's just stuffing his face with that massive spoon. It's like it's like a shovel, and she's got a little teaspoon that she's just, and she's looking at him like this guy is this guy for real. 
the one moment where she is eating her dessert and he's like, I'm still hungry. And basically like looks down at her dessert and she ends up handing it over. There's a couple moments where like he's off screen and she's handing over plates of food. And it's, I'm surprised you don't see like little bits flying everywhere because he's eating so much, but I think he eats every crumb. Plus he even eats the broken dishes. <laughs> the plate eats yes. the plate. <laughs> and the furniture. It's the ultimate metaphor, I think, isn't it, for that idea of food and consumption as just this relentless, insatiable power and destruction. Krumbakova was very much into fairy tales. And I mean, I think this film does have a very strong fairy tale dimension, as well as that kind of parable quality that she often tended to to work with. And I think there's probably a connection here to the you know the Czech photo, uh, the Czech fairy tale Otisanek, which of course was later adapted by Jan Schwankmeyer as Little Otik. And, you know, that's of course about this log, about this piece of wood that just relentlessly keeps eating and eating. And I think he is a, an embodiment of that as well. And it's the idea of the intruder, I think, in the home as well, isn't it, I think? He's like the ogre. He's like the fairy tale ogre, isn't he, that you eventually have to trick you eventually have to get the better of him and trick him in some way to get rid of him. And so she tricks him with the key. And so she is very much like that, I guess, the fairy tale maiden, even though she's slightly older. She has the romantic idea of the prince because what she really likes about him is her fantasy of him, which isn't the reality. And they've known each other for years, but it's ambiguous whether he is actually the devil. But she's like, I've known him for years and he used to be thin and handsome. And he turns up and he's overweight. Look on her face is great. But then he comes in, he goes, oh, you fattened up a bit. You're older. He makes these rude comments to her all the time. I love that even before we see her with that spell book in that opening, we have all those shots of the telephone and the telephone like kind of going around it and just this whole montage of the telephone and the telephone plays such an important part in here. And it's so disruptive to her whenever she talks with him on the phone. I'm imagining that that's Minchik on the other end, but his voice is so different and it has this otherworldly quality and just, he seems to almost torture her through the telephone. It's a dirt, it's like a dirty phone call, isn't it? Is it just me or did one of those phones look like it's got breasts as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because the voice, uh, the essay by Petra Hanakova about this film and Daisies is called Voices from Another World. And uh, yeah, I think you do get that sense that those calls are coming from some kind of supernatural space it's something outside isn't it and again it's that intrusive quality of it's like the mass literally the masculine voice isn't it which is this dominating and intimidating thing and i think the there is that kind of presentation of space i think isn't the way you have like feminine feminized space versus masculine the masculine presence and i feel that you know on the one hand you could say this is a film about domestic labor, domestic you know, servitude, the idea that the, the female character is meant to serve the man. But I feel that there's also something charmed about the space. And No, there's a spiritual dimension to it. If you look at it as a witchcraft film, then the process of cooking and making recipes and things like that has a, has a deep spiritual meaning. It's about alchemy. And I, I do feel that that's there consciously. 
from the first frame, I'm like, this is a witch film. And I don't know that much about Crumbacker's views, but just from looking at her work, she there's something very naturally pagan about. So she is addressing this idea that women are expected to serve men, but she's also addressing a woman's power within that domain, which in the West, where we would have a tendency to look at that in more black and white terms, we would say, oh, well, that's sexist or that's internalised misogyny or whatever. Whereas in a pagan culture, that wouldn't be. That would be a form of, of femininity that was actually very transgressive and sub- subversive, taking control. So she is the nurturer, but the nurturer is it's a powerful thing. And it's not something by the end of the film that she's willing to give freely either. It's like she, she's realised the value of her own magic. So it is a complex film, I think, where she's addressing a lot of different things from different angles. It, it makes for a good comparison, I think, with some of the, what was called counter cinema, I guess, which emerged a bit later. So in a way, this film was ahead of the game because I guess, you know, feminist counter cinema was something I think really that developed in the 70s. So this was a little bit earlier. And if you think of something like Jeanne Dielman, or like the the Laura, Laura Mulvey film Riddles of the Sphinx. I mean, those are very much about domestic labour and about the the the, rep- the repetitiveness of that. And I think in this film, yeah, it's on the one hand making that kind of comment, but it's also giving an affirmation of that. And I mean, if you think of the fact that I mean, Krumbakova emerged out of costume design, and I mean, I guess costume de- design is something that is traditionally conceived as a sort of like a feminised, a feminine sort of art isn't it within the film industry and thereby as something that's less important than say you know script writing or directing and i think she's taking those things these traditionally like feminized areas of creativity and she is affirming them and of course by the end of the film those are the things that she's using to kind of take his power away and to appropriate that so i think it's wonderful it's totally within my own views of this but i think it's it's something that we we've lost in Western feminism over the years because it's become much more about this attachment to the masculine. And I look at something like this, and it's like, well, I don't want to be in a man's world. I want us to have our own world that is has its own value. You know that that's what it means to me. And I see someone like from Bakova and Kitilova the same thing. They come so close to that. But we're not part of any... This is the thing that's remarkable. Like Jan Dielman and Mulvey and all those people were actually part of a a movement where they had these philosophical discussions and the freedom to talk about this. And you just get these women that work in a very male-dominated arena in an oppressed country. They don't really have the space to work things out in a consciousness meeting or... You know, they don't even really have the support of the women around them saying, you go, you go, girl. And yet she's making this film. She's just doing it anyway. I think it's an, an incredibly brave thing for her to have done. She was always seen as problematic. And I feel like she got punished. She got some of the harshest punishment in the normalization. because She couldn't even do costume anymore. And that documentary that was it Kita Lover did on her, it's just heartbreaking. It's just totally heartbreaking because you feel like this was someone with so much talent and that was, you know, we could have seen so much more from her. 
so many of those very big, yeah, key new wave films are, are her. They're attached to her. She really got the worst of both worlds because I guess on the one hand, she wasn't credited enough officially for the things that she did. And yet, I think when it came to that point when normalization was beginning in the early 70s, the fact that she had worked on so many of these films and that she was so key to the new wave, that all all that stood against her. So she couldn't win really because on the one hand, yeah, she didn't get the credit she deserved for those films. And yet on the other hand, those same credits actually stood against her and that you know, got her, I mean, yeah, as you say, blacklisted. And, and then she was really through the seventies and eighties. I mean, she was just working. Sometimes it was sort of like the kind of front style system that you had like in Hollywood under the McCarthy era where she was just working in secret and other people would put their names to her projects and she was selling her own jewelry and stuff like that and really just scraping and living together. So yeah, very sad, really. I love when she first sets the scene for the devil to come to dinner. We mentioned the furniture. She's got all these little tables all over the place, and she puts them all together in order to make one long table. The chairs are like the the easy chairs rather than being like the dining room chairs, those kind of things. And she just has this whole makeshift way of putting together this beautiful spread. And yeah, again, the shots of the food are just amazing. And yeah, when you see her in that room and she's putting all of the the tables together, and that's when I, I think we might we might see the tree beforehand. But to see the tree in that setup, and just to have have him, oh, to have him sitting underneath the tree, and I'm just like, boy, this is Garden of Eden. This is so Garden of Eden here. Yeah, which is an, another trope that runs through her films, isn't it? If you think of Fruit of Paradise, and I love that tree. It's all about Eden. Is yeah, and you could even say there's aspects to it in Daisies. This constant, you know, where you see the two women in Daisies and they're sort of draped in these plants and these sort of yeah, the abundance and the food and it's just so so beautiful. And it's interesting how she plays with Satan because quite often Satan can be seen as the liberal. And he actually quotes Byron, which is interesting because she's like, oh, I don't know who that is. So there's a playing with that because Byron's all about Satan as the liberator. I kind of side with that as well. But she sees Satan not as the liberator, as the kind of desecrator of, of Eden. It's, it's an interesting position. I was thinking about it a lot. You know, what is she, what is, where is she going with this? Where is she going with this? Well, he even makes that reference to her coming from his rib. Like, I might have come from monkeys, but you came from my rib. I'm like, okay. The whole argument they have about monkeys, and she says Darwin was a monkey. I've seen a a photograph of him. That's one of the first instances where she really exerts herself and is like, oh, I saw a book, you know, like, because before that, it's like, what is this? Nietzsche, what is that? I'm like, come on. Because, yeah, she's just self-deprecating the entire time. I've lived this, though. i lived this. Obviously, growing up through the 80s and 90s, there was so much of this. And I considered myself quite, you know, woman's rights sort of thing. It was only in my 40s I realized how much of that I'd done. And you kind of get to this point where a guy's halfway through mansplaining things. You're trying not to make him feel stupid. And you're trying not to upset him. And you just get to this point where you're like, why am I, why am I tolerating this? Like, and, and seeing that, it was just so much relate. 
And of course, that played out for me on social media. And that's why Mike gets complaints about my episodes. <laughs> and I, th- I think part of the subversive brilliance of this is that it kind of like unmasks that whole process of performing that role, doesn't it? It makes it very clear that this is a performance. It's in a performance and they know it and you know it, but you play by the rules. You start, you just play by the rules. So, you know, women, it's interesting that he keeps calling her intelligent because intelligence isn't actually a compliment when you're younger. And it's interesting that he keeps sort of saying, oh, you're a very intelligent woman. So there's this like loaded dialogue going on because it's almost as if he's dismissing her where she wants him to see her as this sort of sensual and sexual woman and she wants this romance and he almost keeps writing her off with the intelligence because to be an intelligent woman is is to be the opposite of the you know the sexual attractive woman and so there's a lot of that going on I was wondering if I was missing parts of it as well because of the subs but certain things that were said there's clear there's like double meanings to there was a lot of wordplay going on. It was, it's really interesting. I'd like to see a better translation of it to see, especially with comedy. It's so hard when it's word comedy and you're just dealing with subs who don't speak that language. And there, there's definitely bit, little bits here and there miss it. I feel like we were missing. Yeah, there there is some wordplay in there. For instance, there's one moment where she talks about the raisins and how she hates them and then in Czech, it's all that with the raisins. See, the raisins, it's like, what? What do the, Is there some significance with raisins to chat culture? Partly it's just a, an excuse for a bit of wordplay. She says, uh, when, when they first mentioned, she says, Rosinki Hrozny, because raisins is Rosinki Hrozny is like horrible or terrible. So it's like Rosinki Hrozny, which just doesn't really translate, I guess. But I guess it's sort of connected to maybe Fruits of Paradise again. I don't know about Temptation or about alcohol. Yeah, but they're weird. They're dry and they're like shriveled up and they're not very appealing. So when they go to the fridge and he's like, you've been hiding these raisins and he gets really angry. I was like, what the fuck is this about? Like, why is he so angry about these raisins? And he's like, you know, you've hidden these from me. And it's like, well, what is his significance? <laughs> And she puts the raisins on the heart cookie that she then uses to trap his mouth so she can get the teeth impressions and compare the impressions against all of the bite marks on her furniture, which I just love. When she finds out that he has chewed on her furniture. Well, the apartment's beautiful and he just goes in there and wrecks it. He's a, he's a complete hooligan. Yeah, but then the whole stack of the razor. Like, what is this razor? Or is it just a surreal thing? It could be anything. But it was like, why? Does this have some like double meaning I'm not getting here? Or is this some sort of, like, related to some cultural event that I'm not getting here? Because why? The raisin seems was such an odd thing. It's like the opposite of the rest of the food that she, she serves, which is very lush or lots of cream and juicy meat. And it shows her, like, putting the the liquid to the meat and the sauces and everything. You've got these like little shriveled up, they look like rabbit poo raisins. I'm not a fan of raisins. But this guy is like, you know, these are the most important thing. What I love with the performances is just that kind of contained rage and contained mania, which both 
actors i think are brilliant at i think just the way that they can just explode on a dime and it's nice to see both of them in lead roles because they often play supporting roles in other movies and i think it's just really great to see them just let loose i think he's so good as well and in the pomposity he remind me slightly of the the kind of character that ugo tognazzi would play in the italian like this kind of preening arrogant man but also not nothing special like but he seems to think he's very special when he first comes in and he's got all his gut hanging out of his shirt and she's sort of looking at him she's like keeps trying to override it by going okay well this is a bit shit but i'll you know i'll overlook that <laughs> like she keeps trying to reconcile it it's amazing well just you know because she's got this fantasy image and he is just so good because he's got this sort of petty arrogance and he will explode. He he's very uses emotional blackmail. When he goes deaf, he's amazing. I can't hear you. <laughs> and then comes round again when she starts talking about the food and like pampering him again. It's like, yeah, I've got my hearing back now. Can I know that you care about me? And it's very selective deafness, isn't it? I think. <laughs> right. And then he complains later on. Oh, my throat hurts. My throat hurts. I haven't been the same since I went deaf, since you made me go deaf. Yeah, he's like the little baby boy. He, he's so funny. And her internalized rage, which is another thing I talk about constantly recently, is women's how we internalize our anger because we don't we don't get really it's not socially acceptable to, to express rage unless you want to be called a feminazi or a man. And so it shows a lot about feminine anger and how she has to keep swallowing that anger and making up a new narrative to calm her own so he'll do something really shitty and she'll rare up but she doesn't quite get to express it and then she'll adjust it so you hear her monologue oh, okay oh but he's wonderful and this whole bargaining system that goes on in her head is incredible and then when he touches the furniture i love it that's it it's like okay i could down with all this stuff but you chewed but when when she gets that cookie and she looks at the teeth and just slaps it it's like, this is so good. Yeah, because you're not supposed to be, because he can't help it. This is the thing. Can't help it. She ends up forgiving him again, though. And it's like, oh, well, and then he promises. I promise I won't touch the furniture again. The next thing you know, he's eating her tree. comes <laughs> <laughs> He's got his mouth on it. And she throws that. Is that when she throws the drink at him? Just throws that whole drink at him. She's like, you ate everything else. You couldn't have eaten these. <laughs> and then he starts licking it up. Mm, vermouth. I mean, that he eats all of her stewed fruit and she finds that huge pile of the stones that he's just spit out onto the floor. I think there is a commentary there, uh, like private space as well, isn't there really? And I think the fact that it's the space that's violated and that's the thing that, that, that triggers her finally, because I guess this was a time, this is like 1970, so... You know, you're kind of like getting into that normalization era when everybody is being sort of, you know, fired and everything is being banned and people retreat really into their private space. And this was really something that Krumbakova did and that she had to do. And, you know, her apartment, she had this kind of mythical apartment basically that was crammed with things. And apparently this was like her universe really in which she felt safe, in which she felt that she could just pursue her own projects. And I think it's all about that 
private space as this sort of kingdom of one's own, I think. And it's the fact that when he starts to violate that. It's totally, yeah, totally that. There is a thing that, you know, women have often have a very strong connection to environment. And quite often that's how we will express our creativity um, when we don't have other outlets. So through decoration, through, and you know, so many women obsess over the home. And a lot of that is to do with, I think, frustrated, like creative, needing that. And so the home becomes almost like a, an extension of you in a way that I don't generally see with men. I, men don't seem to have that same connection. It's like a like a creative connection to the home. It's your domain. It's your space. It's very you. And um, and it is, and knowing it's her own stuff as well brings an extra level to this because he's violating the things. But she's got that beautiful space and it's like this little witchy creative space with her little spell books where she, you know, she's in there. She's doing her magic and this twat comes in and he starts ruin it he starts to encroach you know not on a body it's interesting not on a bodily boundaries but on a spatial ones and that's when she really can't t- it's like don't touch the furniture you know don't eat the plant and he's like well this plant's too big and it's just like yeah he's trying to come in and change i guess it's hard to explain but it's like the physical space becomes an extension of you because it is a it's your creativity in a way. So so it's like he is trying to smother that creativity in it. He keeps talking about harmony a lot, but that harmony seems to involve her just doing what he wants. Anytime she imposes a rule like don't touch the plant or don't do that, that's when he starts to bring it, oh, you don't you want to live in harmony? And I, you start to think, well, what is har- harmony means doing what i say that's not harmony harmony is is this <laughs> and he uses that quite a lot which is interesting because it's her flat he doesn't even live there i kept wondering how much money he was charging her as far as all that food has to cost her a pretty penny and she's constantly having to restock mm. her refrigerator and to your point about 1970 i'm like what was the financial situations of most Czech people that were going to see this? Was this kind of a, a, you know, looking at all that food, was that like unfair to the audience to be like, oh my God. <laughs> Cause I know that was some of the complaints against daisies was like, oh, all the waste, the waste of this food. And with a movie like this, I was like, boy, I bet you the crew ate really well. Oh yeah. There was a big thing. Wasn't there on food wastage? That was one of the, one of the things that was so uncommunist. <laughs> you do love food in film, I have to say. And this and Daisies are two of the best food films for food porn. <laughs> That's the idea, I think, though, isn't it? It's, it makes you want to sit at that table. Yeah, while our farmers are struggling. In the <laughs> yeah, because it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty sort of luxurious food, isn't it? All that fresh cream and, and yeah, fresh meat and, 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 yeah, all that alcohol. And it, it, it gets the balance right. There's a critic who wrote about the film as like a 
rejection of the gaze, like the sort of the male gaze. And I think you could say there's a sort of a displacement almost, isn't there, from the, the, the sort of the, the body, I guess, and from looking at the body to looking at the food. So the food becomes a stand-in for, I guess, the sort of visual pleasure that you would get from, you know, the kind of traditional, in the traditional way from the male gaze. And here it's all about this kind of, in a way, sensuous food, isn't it, I think? Yeah, but there's that whole saying that they grind into us traditionally, you know, the way the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. You know, and my grandmother was very much a compulsive cooker for men, <laughs> you know. And she had like nine sons and everything, but she was obsessed with creating food, like food, food, food. It becomes a, a source of power. But what's interesting is the way that she uses it is the man is never satisfied. So she isn't able to gain that power. She doesn't get to his heart. He's like this bottomless pit. Like Mike said, with the loaf, he gets that loaf of bread, that giant, ridiculous loaf of bread in the pate, and he shovels the pate into his mouth or even starts touching the bread. And her, she's just incredulous. It's like, when is this going to end? And the message is, it's never going to end. You're just going to have to keep shoveling things into this guy. You're never going to get to his heart. She, she's almost as if she's, bar- oh, well, the next meal, the next thing, but there's never, it's never satiated. So I don't know if that was a saying that they had in Eastern European culture, but I'm sure there are various versions of it that appear all over the world culturally. This idea of, you know, if you really want to get a man, you need to feed him. So there's a play on that as well. There's a definite play on this idea of feeding the man. I think Hannah Kavar mentions it and she's Czech. I think, yeah, she does say that it is, it's like the ultimate, the ultimate variation on this, yeah, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. And of course, it's that famous kind of joke about that, the best way to a man's stomach is with a knife, actually not through food, but. <laughs> There's that incredible shot of them in her kitchen where she's brought an armchair and he's sitting in the armchair She's on the arm of the armchair with two knives, and there are two ovens that are open with, I think, geese, like a goose in each oven. And he's just there looking from one oven to the other. And he's just so happy about that. And she's just like giddy that he is happy because she is just there to serve this guy. I'm surprised. I know she ends up washing his sweater. He leaves his mitten there at one point, but he, you know, Kambrakova is first and foremost this wonderful, wonderful costume designer. And you get all of these great costumes while she's putting together meals. She's changing outfits. You don't see the change of the outfits. They just happen. And that's the thing I like about this movie too, is that we just move from one place to another, especially in her apartment. And there's no pretense of, I have walked to this place. We are just suddenly over here. And I really like that. It's like this story takes place over here and then suddenly we're over here for the next scene. And then we go over here for the next sequence. And it's like, this is great. But yeah, she's in all of these costumes, beautiful, beautiful costumes. And then he's always wearing this torn jacket and that shirt with missing buttons. He's complaining about, you know, I don't, I don't have anybody to do this stuff. And I'm surprised that he isn't just bringing her clothes to mend every single time he shows up. But he's useless, isn't he? That's the whole thing, like the power of the devil, but he's useless. He can't even sew on a button or feed himself. He's like, and and I think a lot of women get to that middle age and they do realise, no offence to you two guys, I'm sure you're very enlightened, 
beings, but a lot of men that haven't grown up because they haven't needed to grow up. And it is, I guess she's looking from that point of view as well. You know, what actual use is this man to me now I'm older? And, you know, what I'm just supposed to look after him like like a child because he's so childlike, like to an absurd degree. They're going deaf because he did, can't handle hearing something. And he's always like, like anytime she does anything, he becomes this stroppy little child. And it is amazing. It takes that idea of um, the male insecurity and the stuff like the Italians did, but it makes it really grotesque. It's like really amplified. And I, I think it's wonderful. And Menchik as well is perfect that role like he's just so good he's so good in everything even if he has one scene i always cheer when he turns up yeah he's so good because he's such a great character actor and he and he didn't mind playing ridiculous roles obviously and he's so good in this i think he said in relation to making this film that he said it was great because i didn't have to do anything all i had to do was eat basically (laughs) and i think he knows he's not the most handsome man in the world but the way that everybody reacts to him in the movie, it's like, is that him? Is that him? Oh, oh, he's a looker. And I'm like, is he? I don't really think he is a looker. I love the guy, and I think he's handsome in his own way, but not traditionally handsome. Yeah, but they know that, though, as well, because she sees a reality at the same time. There's like these two levels of reality that go on all the time, and then she has those... Well, she has nightmares about him, but she also has the fantasy scene where they're in bed and it's all white flowing, sort of, you know. And then it's like he's not like that. And him going, have you found my mitten? That scene is really funny, uh, like the music performance, and she's looking at the other man and and they're asking, uh, the friend is asking her, is this him? And she's like dismissing the other man because one of those men is actually Jan Yemet. He's one of the three men who are looking at the sheets of music like very admiringly. And I think he's the last of the three that is mentioned. And that's funny because her look is like particularly dismissive when it comes to him. And I think, I think, I mean, yeah, Metz and Krumbakava have been married and divorced by this point. So, yeah, I was going to say, were they still together? He, he stayed, he championed it or continued to champion it, didn't he? The creative work and stuff. Yeah, he had a bit of a strange attitude to this film because he there's a sort of story that he tells that I think the I think the origin of the film was a short story that Krumbakova wrote and then she turned it into a radio play which is interesting but given the kind of theatrical nature of it um, and then I think after that according to Niemetz Niemetz basically was in trouble at this point and couldn't get projects made and so according to him one of the film production units just as a favor said, just write a script. We won't produce it. We won't make it, but that will give you some money. You know, we'll just give you a fee for writing the script. And so apparently it was a bit of a, according to him, they just wrote it as a pretext for him to get some money and there was no intention to make it. That This is his version. And then that Krumbakova, she just wanted to pursue it. And then she took over the direction. Seemingly, I mean, from what it sounds like, it seems that she, she didn't, intend originally to direct it but it was just a way to get the project made and then later he i think in the i think it is in the documentary isn't it by hitilava where he says it's like the stupidest film that i've ever seen and he, he just he's just really dismissive and i just wonder how much of that just relates to that particular circumstance of, of the making of it from his point of view but if you have 
read any of his short stories, Jonathan. So I've never been able to find any in English. Uh, yeah, yeah, there is a little book that she uh, published in the 90s called The First Book of Esther, which is a kind of combination of letters that she wrote and then these very strange fairy stories. I mean, I, yeah, I read some of them and, and uh, yeah, they are really strange, but just as you would imagine, I guess, they don't, they don't disappoint. They're all full of, yeah, just bizarre, you know, kind of rewritings of traditional folk stories and fairy stories stories you yeah she was like the Czech Angela Cart she was mm, absolutely yeah yeah that's I'd not thought of that but that's a good she she was totally in that same sort of playing with those same things same archetypes same mythology always like strong folklore fairy tale links or pagan links um yeah but hers were more surreal and I've always wanted to read a uh, fiction but unfortunately Maybe now she gets like a bigger name, maybe someone might put the funding in to translate them because it's so hard to find this this stuff unless someone happens to have a name or a film was made of, of something and then you might get a translation. But I'd love to read though, like even just seeing the, you know, this is totally, you could totally imagine this being a weird little little folk tale that, that she wrote. Um, it's really got that same vibe. I want more. I want. Didn't they try and make a film, or was it Nemesh? I'm, I haven't seen that documentary for years. I should have watched it again. Didn't they try and make a film, or did they make a film that featured some of her short stories? I seem to remember something mentioned in that documentary. They were talking about she in a few stories that they were trying to. But I don't know if it was made. Yeah, I need, and I meant to look more into it. I've lost track of that, but I think there was. Yeah, there was, I think there was an attempt to do it. Yeah, and and that would have been. You know, it would be great if somebody would would do that because yeah, and there were so many things. I think there were so many projects that she developed that never went any further. And I think she did have a tendency to write things first as short stories, and then would later develop them into scripts and. Yeah, I think there was just kind of like a whole world that's that's kind of hidden, really. I think what, what actually got made was really just the tip of the iceberg. And yeah, eh, there, there's so much more, I'm sure, that was there. You know, the one thing that we haven't mentioned while we're talking about this movie is those series of, I don't know what you would call them, like her thoughts where she's framed, usually in like a picture frame, and you get that a few times, especially towards the end when she has gotten her revenge and somehow those, and I don't understand how this works and maybe you guys can help me out. Somehow those raisins end up, but somehow she ends up making a lot of money and there's all of these shots within those frames of like a chandelier and beautiful chair and all these kind of things. But yeah, we get those throughout the entire movie of her looking at the camera and telling us her thoughts and again, with the costumes, every single time it's like a different costume she's wearing. They're very gorgeous. But I just love that that's another storytelling way that Krimbakova is, is informing us of, of what our main character is thinking. And it is like a fairy tale in that way because it's telling you that like once upon a time. And the only thing I wrote down about the raisins was maybe they're like magic, but they're like the magic bean device of a fairy tale or something. I don't know. You know, because she takes these ra this sack of raisins and she somehow 
it seems like a very fairy tale thing. She doesn't deliberately doesn't tell us how. Um, just leaves us, you know. And and that fortune teller says, you know, you'll have this suffering, but it will be the raisin, <laughs> the raisins as well. So I was thinking maybe it's like a magic bean scenario here, but for some reason the raisins. Perhaps raisins were really hard to get in Czechoslovakia at the time. I don't know, but she's like, the price is going up. He's like, why would people be paying so much money? I don't get it. <laughs> it seems like the raisins do something for you because she has those fantasy sequences of like the boat and things. It's like, do these give you something or do they just unlock fantasies? That's what I got from there's some sort of yeah hallucinogenic effect or something, isn't there? Yeah, she said, or she said one bite of the raisin. Wasn't it like I had one one raisin or I had one bite of the raisin, and then that's how she gets the idea to be rich from eating the the raisin. I don't know. I don't know. I'll be wondering about those raisins forever. I I wanted to publish her diaries. <laughs> Somehow those raisins, she works with the fortune teller and the fortune teller has something on her table, like where she would put the cards. And I'm like, I'm not exactly sure what's going on here. So the funny thing is it doesn't really matter, but I was just curious as far as like. No, but it does because it will have, a, if it's coming back of her, there was a reason that was raised <laughs> bugging me. And it's like. Or is it just that we're supposed to think about these raisins? Like, well, because there is a lot of black humor in there as well. Maybe it is that they're just such an arbitrary, non interesting thing. Yeah, like a pathetic inversion or a pathetic sort of reduction of the idea of like grapes and of the associations of drunkenness and of, of, of decadence. And it's just, yeah, reduced to this shriveled little thing that, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think one fairy tale trope that is there is that trope of like the, what they call in check the 13th chamber of, as the secret place that you're not meant to go in and i think by the end the kitchen has become the 13th chamber chamber with this secret that nobody knows about and that is revealed by unlocking the door and such a classic way the way that she traps him just that whole every time he would make a promise he will break the promise so it's like oh yeah here's the key to the kitchen yeah no i'm i'm gonna go to the other room here, I'll give you this key if you promise me you won't go in the kitchen. He's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I promise. I promise. And also, what else is that from Fairy Tale? It's Bluebeard, isn't it? Which I'm obsessed with Bluebeard and the way that it manifests in so many different films. Um, and, of course, Andrew Carr was obsessed with Bluebeard. But it's, give you the key, go in here. And, of course, that's Bluebeard's wife. But here is the devil. So again, it's like, wow, like what is going on here? There's like so many weird little subversive. And of course, just like Bluebeard's wife, he can't help but go in there. And she pretends to go out like Bluebeard does. Oh, I'm going out of the castle now. Here's the keys. Don't go in that one room. And of course, as soon as he goes out the door, she goes to the forbidden room and finds all the slaughtered wives. Here is a big sack of raisins. <laughs> So you get stuck in. Head first. Yeah. Is this your head? Whack. And then the smoke is coming, isn't it, from the sack? That <laughs> he just dives in head first and his little feet hanging out. And he was so excited that one of his shoes fell off. <laughs> and I love her with that huge spoon or ladle beating on the bag. 
and then sits on it and lights two cigarettes. Two cigars, yeah. And she's got all that smoke, and it's so sexual. It is so sexual the way she's sitting there. Yeah, those phallic cigars that she's smoking through the whole movie. I was just like, oh, this is interesting. She's like straddled over the bag. Well, there's that other scene, other amazing smoking scene, which I noted down. When she first smokes, like gets her very, well, they're like mini cigars, aren't they? And he gets out this like crumpled up roll up and she tries to light his, his cigarette. It's all broken. She tries to do the thing that men do in noir films where they like the, the femme cigarette. And he gets out that massive box of matches. Like, his, I've never seen matches that large. They're huge. <laughs> giant match. And she's just like there with a lighter, like, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. And you just think, if you think of the sort of phallic nature, like, what is, what is all that about? It's got to be at least a foot long, that box. Yeah. Well, I love when he finally tells her that he's the devil. And she's just like, yeah, no. <laughs> she just doesn't believe him. And there's all the supernatural stuff that starts to happen, like him somehow bursting through the top of the elevator. And her big thing is just like, are you going to pay for that? Are you going to fix that elevator? <laughs> And again, like, we don't see anybody else in the apartment building. We just hear the voices of the other people, probably on other floors. And she sneaks back into her room, and then she's so mad and gets the, the phone call. He comes to the door. She kicks him out. Eventually, she gets this phone call. Like, just a few seconds later, she's like, you were just at my door. And then you get that great, it reminded me of Salem's Lot, the little kid in the pajamas outside the window, but it's him and his his ripped overcoat just floating there outside of her window. That's one of the greatest images in this movie. And he's like, let me in, because he is kind of like a vampire, but not a very seductive one. In fact, he's the opposite of seductive. But then she says, uh, she looks at the lift again and she says, oh, he's so manly to have broken that lift. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every time he does something horrible, she has to find an excuse for him. I think women are put under that, though. You know, this is, oh, they didn't mean it. They were just trying to be nice. They they were just, and there is that whole, I guess, because she's constantly bargaining with herself. And you think about the position of the devil and the whole Faustian pact and bargaining with the devil, making deals with the devil. Um, she's constantly making deals and bargains with herself, which is interesting. Because he'll do something, he crosses a boundary, she is immediately unhappy, but then she will... It's almost like she's bargaining with him, with herself or making these little... And she constantly does that. She does it in the monologues. She she just does it to herself. All the, it's like constantly talking to herself, which is amazing. Or you hear her voice oh you know why he's just so manly and it's like you know five minutes ago you were kicking him out of the flat so there is that i think that tendency to i think she even though it's a beautifully creative film and it's gorgeous and it's very sensual and also borderline erotic in at certain parts not menchik's character but you know when it comes to female sexuality there's also a lot of anger in this film there's a lot of anger, a lot of frustration. I think both her and Vera 
felt very marginalised within the new wave. Very, I mean, if you were Kitty, they were in her later time. I mean, she was really bit, like really bitter, really angry that she felt that she had to compromise as a woman. That she was told, you know, she was unequal, but then at the same time, she was given all the all the female domestic staff. Well, old Kachera, um, she was married to at the time. He could just amble around, didn't have to look after the kids. He could just, you know. And I think there was a lot of, I think, Krumbakov, maybe outside of the political thing, just as a, as a woman, as a middle-aged woman, as somebody coming into the sort of different part of being, was exercising that anger. The anger, the, the fact that she probably felt let down by men. There's a, there's a lot of stuff in there that kind of is much more personal. And what a wonderful way to transform that anger than making like a beautiful, absurdist film like this that you can laugh at is instantly transformed, isn't it? Isn't it? I think that's one interpretation that's been given of it. Yeah, that it is about the adjustments that one has to constantly make to power. Yeah, you do. As a woman, you constant. But I think you don't actually start to realise that until you get older. And forty-seven. I mean, that's a pretty key age for a woman you probably start to get into perimenopause at that time you start to feel less like you need to compete sexually you know that sort of thing you get a bit of space and you start to think i've made so many compromises here and the film is largely about compromise and you but it's not that women it's it's almost like it becomes this perpetuating thing within you because your internal monologue will do it for you and here she is exploring that she she constantly has to regroup her, like recreate these new narratives to sort of, we've all been there. I just thought we've all been there, love. <laughs> it's quite funny that his name is Church as well, rather than Jarbel, because you have two names for devil in Czech and, and you have like Church and Jarbel. So Jarbel is, I guess, more like the kind of biblical figure of the Bible. So probably would be more like the classic kind of paradise lost devil, I guess. And then Church is more of a kind of a folktale figure that is, I guess, kind of like a lower level, like a lower level devil that's more of a kind of a mischievous figure. And I think it's, it's kind of significant that he, he he's demoted to that level really. And because I think there is this constant kind of, uh, diminution of his authority because he does I think he is meant to represent this sense of like male authority isn't he or public authority and yeah but he's not the majestic in ruin Byronic anti-hero is he he's not the seducer he's not even a trickster I just kept thinking and I don't know why Rumpelstiltskin you know that sort of character who tries to trick the trick the princess and is kind of gross and entitled so that's really interesting that has a because that's more of a folklore sort of devil, whereas the literary devil with the great art and everything is the romantic devil. It's almost as if she wants him to be the romantic devil because she makes that whole speech about, you know, I've always been comfortable with sin. I've always sinned, you know, and it's almost as if she wants the devil's attention. She wants him to be this great romantic anti-hero and she gets this ridiculously inept person he's not even mid-level management he's just a grunt 
He specializes, what, in women in cars, I think he says at one point. And then his title is interesting as well, because in the original check, he's an engineer, which is it's kind of a hard title to translate, really, because it is, I think, would be kind of roughly equivalent to like being like MSc, like it's meant to indicate maybe like kind of like a postgraduate kind of education in something scientific. So it's not strictly just like an engineer, but I think that's meant to indicate that he has some kind of professional authority. And yet, and it's kind of incoherent. No, he's not intelligent, though, is he? He's not bright. He's not... He, he, yeah, he just names books with not much... Like, he just names these books at her. In, yeah, like Darwin or whatever, and she just pretends. You can tell she's just humoring him. Yeah, he's just, like, name-dropping, but he, he doesn't have any ideas or any theories of himself. He just uses that. And he keeps saying, you know, I'm a professor or I'm... You know, and and you just think, but you're not. You're really banal. You're not <laughs> remotely intelligent. Yeah, because he says at one point he's a professor, doesn't he? And then he says he's an engineer. And then at another point he says, I just I just basically sit and think, and it's all about sort of intellect. And then at another point he says, I'm a great technician. And this is a man he can't even mend his own clothes, you know, or make himself dinner. You're going to trigger me in a minute, Jonathan. But- certain male academics because we've all been here but, but he is the guy in candy man the academic in the restaurant where he's saying to virginia madsen to have you read my thesis he's that guy and it's really funny because i don't know if she kate did she ever clash with like but there's also seemingly some sort of anger i guess over male gatekeeping of um intellectual Maybe, um, whereas she actually, from this character, obviously thinks they're ridiculous. And this is decades before we start exposing men for mansplaining. Because he is, he's just a mansplaining prick, basically, saying nothing. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of the time it's just such nonsense, isn't it? And just just the way she responds. <laughs> What's that? part where he says about being like a bear and she's like, oh a bear that's really interesting and it just that's what mansplaining is though <laughs> oh yeah or maybe it isn't <laughs> well they could be a fascinating animal but on the other hand maybe not and yeah it's so funny their dialogue but it, it totally is that you know the way that guys just expect that sort of authority and I was trying to think you know because it's not really something that you see you see it more in modern films now comedies because obviously we're culturally conscious that this is a thing but not a lot in other films you know with with the fact that she is actually being mansplained to the entire time even about the significance of raisins because she's just kind of like what to start with she's the same as her she's like What the fuck? Because he takes that bag of raisins. He's like, why didn't you tell me about this? And she's like, well, I forgot they're in there because she doesn't, you know. So so it is really about that authority, that authority, which I imagine Krembakova had to deal with some pretty hardcore mansplaining in her career. And it, yeah, I, again, I think that, yeah, makes me think again of the, the story about Otto Karbabra, who I guess... Probably not. I mean, this was a guy who, you know, sort of like functioned under every political regime and and, and could, uh, 
you know, change his politics to suit whichever way the wind was blowing and probably the, not the most kind of decent guy and just, yeah, just very, treated her very dismissively. And which hammer, you know, it becomes his masterpiece. Um, and you look at it within the context of all those other films and you think this is, again, it's her. It's about the oppression of women. It's about this more pagan side of femininity that is suppressed by this very patriarchal system. And it's a theme that runs through a lot of films that she, well, was often credited just costume or maybe working on the script. I can't remember who it was, so I saw an interview. It might have been in that documentary where when this actor was saying he didn't understand his motivation on a film he was working on. She gave him these things to put in his pocket. Yeah, Fifth Horseman, I think, yeah. Is it Fifth Horseman said, oh, it was like a pen knife or whatever, and she... Piece of string, and yeah. And she said, carry these in, in your pocket. So she would think very much about character and, you know, the, the significance of things, the colour of something. Even if you weren't going to see it in colour, she would apparently obsess over the colour of the sky or a handkerchief and everything had to she she was totally on her own planet but then these directors would often say on my film and I never wanted to give that joint credit because once you start watching enough of her work you start to recognize no 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 no, this is all coming from it has to be there is a story about the making of Martyrs of Love which was Nemex's third film or their third film and Apparently, yeah, I think they were still married at this point, but apparently were not always on good terms. And they said that whenever they had a, an argument, they had a fight, the production would stop because Krumbakova would not be on set. And that meant that they wouldn't know what they were doing. So I think she was doing a lot of the, the direction of that. And yeah, and I think that's what you find from a lot of these films that she was there. She was actually on set. She was participating and yeah. Yeah, she was on set. She was uh, talking to the actors. She was... You know, basically directing. She was she was directing, but rarely given credit for that. Very involved in. She wouldn't just write a script and hand it over. She'd then go on to the set and help. You know, the actors help the director help. Yeah, so it was very much about creative energy. But um, if you look at this film and this idea of women being excluded or gatekeep kept, and then you look at career, you can totally understand why she probably felt the way that she did. She's coming up to 50 and is is just about to get blacklisted. And it's like this, you can imagine, she'd taken like a good decade or so of this shit. <laughs> she, she'd worked for Vavra around this same time. You know, I know Nemesh supported her, but he could also be difficult as well. She's working with very egotistical men in the, in the new ways. And the re- I think the remarkable thing about her talent was that it was not only this exceptional sort of visual sense, but also this literary talent too. And that capacity for this absurdist dialogue is there, I guess, in something like Party and the Guest. And I think here, again, this is like a you know the ultimate example, isn't it, of being able to write this deliberately nonsensical, bizarre dialogue, which I think does show a real mastery of words because there is this kind of constant juxtaposition of just very banal language with this very flowery, playful language. And, you know, I mean, of course, in Party and the Guest, that's all about like the kind of emptiness of like political rhetoric. And here, I guess that's turned on to the male figure, isn't it? That it's this this emptiness of this male 
And also dinners again, dinner parties again, <laughs> dinners. Plus, I remember that one, just the way that the dinner party is set up outside felt very odd and felt very theatrical. And also the way that they have to move seats and all those things. I soon remember there was like a hierarchy of that kind of stuff. So yeah, really, I'm like, oh yeah, of course the same person made these two things. Even in Valeria in A Week of Wonders, there is that sort of scene when they're outside with the bishop, Father Grazian, who of course is Jan Klusak, and it's evoking the role that he played in Party and the Guests. And again, you know, you can see her sensibility completely at work there. But you've got the devil figure in Valerie, who's more like a vampire, but also maybe a proxy for that more seductive devil, who in part becomes the liberator, but in in another way, it's all about taking, it's all about taking this feminine power. And you've got the earrings in Valerie, like she has to protect the earrings. And it's like every man that she comes across is trying to take something from it. So you've got that same playing with the devil. Because when you put the woman and the devil together, that's a very powerful thing, given how we've been inextricably linked by Christianity somehow in league together, you know. And she took these very paradises where you've got the old idea of the Garden of Eden and temptation and food in that one as well. There's that whole stuff with the oranges when they're like, having this sort of orange orgy, squashing the fruit on their body. <laughs> yeah, so it's all like, it's very, some really powerful stuff. That, no apples in this one. I was waiting to see apples because you quite often see apples in their films. No, but you do see a lot of carrots. There's one part where she's talking with him on the phone and she lifts up her legs and she's sitting on the counter and she's rubbing her legs and she's got the stockings on her legs are beautiful and then she reaches up and starts fondling this carrot and i was like oh wow because i noticed too she does a lot of like rubbing on her breasts throughout the entire movie as well like i, I saw a little of that as like when you put your hand on your heart like i can't believe this but she always had her hand down like grabbing onto her boob if she wants to get laid and this guy is just completely impotent yeah he's dangling the carrot basically She's not getting the carrot. I think her horniness, I mean, that in and of itself is such a forbidden taboo thing. And again, we see more of it now, obviously, with people like Helen Mirren and Isabel Hooper now, they're aging. They were seeing a kind of breakthrough, but 1970, and you've got a woman who's nearly 50, and she's like this very sensuous, glamorous, very beautiful woman. Who's totally against that the the sort of older woman the the matronly sort of type? She's like a force of nature, and this guy doesn't know what to do with her. It's like he just doesn't even notice. He sat there like, "Give me my food." He just because he he sees her as a mem. He wants a mummy. That's what he wants. There's a lot of taboo about sexuality in there as well, which is amazing. You do get the sense, so this is what he does. He has a whole career of this phoning up women and then going to their houses and getting fed. This is what he does and telling them he's the devil. And he's not even loyal to her. When they have that concert, he starts winking and says, like, six here. 
And he's obviously doing it to her friend, but then, you know, oh, no, no. When I get emotional from the music, I wink. <laughs> That's really the last straw. And he's stingy as well. Yeah. He says, I'll lend you some money. But <laughs> and I can see this guy going around town to all of these different houses all in the same day and just eating, eating, eating constantly because he's just a hole to be filled. What, what do you think of the ending? Because I think it's quite an ambiguous ending in a way. It's a bit like murder check style, isn't it? Where it's like, if you can't beat them, join them. Or he's going to buy her a mirror. And she's like, all this food for one bloody mirror. A pocket mirror. <laughs> it's ambiguous. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. It's like, I guess in a way she makes it in a man's world and she gets all this material wealth. Yeah, but it's like, is that? Yeah, it is like, is that, you know, did she, is that a compromise? I couldn't, you know, yeah, she has this beautiful life with the champagne, the beautiful costumes, and she's telling you how great it is. But I don't know, you get a sense that is it, though? Yeah, basically. <laughs> she becomes a capitalist, doesn't she, in a way? Because, yeah, she's she's commodifying these raisins. But you think, yeah, in a way, you think, well, yeah, fair play to her. But, yeah, it's not kind of the... But I guess this is back of our again, that it's never giving you the easy option. It's not this this kind of overt unambiguous affirmation it's there's something sort of strange there isn't there that she yeah she she it's not quite that she becomes this it's not quite a positive ending in in a sense you get the sense maybe she has kind of appropriated some of his qualities and and but yeah because she learns to trick other people basically um and you get the traditional all i could think of was like the traditional fairy tale you marry the prince and you get the wealth and everything so she kind of does that independently. So we could read that as that terrible girl boss trope. Whereas I'm not that impressed by that anymore. I don't think Krumbakova would have been. I'm not impressed by the girl boss. I know we saw so much of it in the 80s and the 90s. And they're now saying it about Barbie, which immediately turns me off seeing it. Oh, the girl boss sort of feminism. And it's like, yeah, you won capitalism like men. I don't think that's progress. So there is this, I don't know, detect a slight maybe cynicism in what she's telling us, maybe. And we know this woman is an unreliable narrator at this point as well. Because quite often what she tells us, this narrative about this devil we see isn't true as well. Yeah, it's deliberately incoherent, isn't it, I think. Uh, and then at the end, she tells us that she's going on this exhibition uh, expedition to Tibet to, to bag a snowman. And you think, well, maybe, maybe that's a positive because, I mean, now she is the one with the power and she's going to, like, capture this this snowman and it, the roles have, have changed, I guess. But, yeah, it, 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 I'm not quite clear, like, what is the significance of that, that it's an abominable snowman. I guess it's a, an improvement from... Like the song says, better a snowman than no man, which is like, come on, honey, you don't need a man. It's really okay. Yeah, it's a strange one. I don't think it's really supposed to be a triumph, but we do get those wonderful like fantasy scenes, which are just so beautiful. And I was looking at them again and thinking, God, these restored, they would just be, oh, the costumes and the colors and just even the food scene, just imagining that restored oh 
Another strange thing is the kayak, isn't it? Because he tells this long story about not getting his kayak. And then you see the kayak in this, this scene, which I guess is like meant to be hell, isn't it? And he's sitting triumphantly on the kayak. And maybe that's a little bit like the raisins and that it's, I guess, some sort of symbol of power or some kind of meant to be some sort of grand symbol that's just reduced to this rather kind of shrunken form. Because the kayak is kind of pathetic, isn't it? And she's doing the whole, that's nice, dear. That's nice. <laughs> she's just like, what the fuck? This guy at? Like, who gives a shit? <laughs> it had a hole in it the size of my fist. Because he won't shut up about it. He just keeps going on and on about that kayak. I have to tell you, Jonathan, I didn't make the connection of the boat in the fantasy to the kayak of his discussion. Because when I was thinking kayak, I was literally thinking very, very kayak. You know, it wasn't just thinking boat. Or does she have a bigger boat? Or he's imagining a bigger boat? I don't know. There is so much about fantasy and reality, though, isn't there? You're constantly seeing people telling stories to themselves, to other people, this idea of the fantasy, and then the reality of it is it's actually just shit. This guy's going to come in, ruin your apartment, tell you to get a smaller plant, eat all your food, give you a shitty pocket mirror, flirt with your friends, (laughs) probably go around and eat their food as well, humiliate you. He doesn't even give her the pocket mirror. He just talks about the pocket mirror. Oh, I'll I'll get you a mirror. And then she's, a mirror? A mirror? Just for all this? Yeah. This one isn't as easy as it should be to find, unfortunately. there It is available, or at least it was on Criterion Channel. I think that you can find a pretty cheap DVD on Amazon. I'm trying to remember what name it's under. And I want to say it's like $5 before shipping. And I think that has subtitles, but um, don't quote me on that one. But yeah, it's... You can find it on YouTube, but all the subtitles are actually Czech themselves. They're not English, so that makes it a little difficult. And yeah, the English subtitles definitely could use a new translation. Yeah, they're not great. There just seemed to be a lot of dialogue that was unsubbed as well. And it's a little out of sync as well, which I think makes that more confusing, I think. Sometimes, yeah, a lot of... You get a, like a chunk of text in the subtitles before they've really finished speaking, which is a little, yeah, it just makes it feel like there's big gaps where there's no subtitles and they're continuing to talk. And I think, I think it did used to be on the Czech Film Classics YouTube channel at one point in quite a nice resolution with, I, I think, maybe different subtitles, but I, I checked and it's not there anymore. But maybe it will come back on that because that, that channel is doesn't have a huge number of films with english subtitles but has a few good ones and and yeah maybe it will come back there but yeah i would like to see a, a nice deluxe release for it as well yeah this is definitely one where i hope that somebody puts together a restoration of it soon because i would really i mean this movie we should also say it's what 112 minutes long 111 minutes long we've been talking about it longer than the length of the movie but it's so interesting that it... It's our audio commentary. <laughs> oh, my God. That would that would be a nightmare commentary. One, one of those ones when you feel like you're just warming up and the film ends. <laughs> I think now is the time. I mean, now that Jan Dillman has... And I think deservedly, I was really happy about that, that that got the, the top place now in the site in San Paulo. Same. It, well, I didn't put it in my top 10, but it was on my short list. Uh, Jan Dealman, and I also had Krumbakova on there. So there's 
But then you add that whole thing, film culture is dying, it's all ruined, the list is broken, that's it, let's all pack up and go home. Uh, I wouldn't imagine, though, it was too far ahead of its time. But like you said, now we got Jan Dealman, and it's, it was so good to see that win because I think it shows that film culture is is changing. We do want to hear from these women. There's a there's an openness to it. And I know BFI published a whole video explaining why the list, list had changed so much. And it wasn't just... One of the things I found interesting about that was it wasn't they just let plebs like me in to vote. Um, none of my choices got in. I'd feel paradise on there. Um, but it was also the fact that the way that we watch films had changed and places like Criterion Channel had played a, apparently played a massive part because I think 50 of the films on their 100 best list have been shown or are out on a Criterion disc. So they would be the ones to do it, I think. You know, because he's creating an openness now to receive this cinema in a way that we can appreciate. I think some of these women like Jan Dealman or Krumbakova or even Hitilova at the time, they were too far ahead of their time to really be appreciated. And we can look at them now and we can say, Jesus Christ, they were talking about this stuff before anyone else, you know, just as women, not as, as a manifesto. They weren't making manifesto films. They were creating these women they were they were exploring the things that they saw were barriers and some of them as in the case of Krumbakova were having to do it in a very I guess a very abstract way not to be too confrontational so maybe using a bit of comedy to lighten it a bit and she's talking about very serious things so now is the time I think that you could bring a film out like this and the audience has changed I think enough of a degree to accept a film like this whereas if we look at the 2012 sight and sound you know it still very much was like Kubrick Hitchcock you know that sort of thing and I think that's one of the great things about streaming is it's opened up things that maybe wouldn't have got tested on disc because they weren't quote-unquote classics um it opens that audience space up doesn't it for people to test the waters with the Czech New Wave, maybe go and see the come back of the film. That's why we need them to act on it now, though, because there's a lot of buzz I'm seeing around her. And I think that's been great. I know a lot of people complain about streaming. They say it's killing cinema or whatever, but there's a whole film culture that's coming directly from the more, I guess, the more independent or more alternative streaming platforms. So Mubi is another great example of that, where people are now audience tastes are changing they're more open to subtitled films in the west now i think because of criterion channel because of a movie and things like that they're more open to watch the more feminine for feminist films i thought it was amazing when john dillman won the blu-ray sold out that weekend i know someone was trying to get it it was just totally sold out everywhere of course there's certain people that don't think that's a good thing but you know I think it's a beautiful thing. I hope it continues to change because, as I said last time, you know, we've had certain key cornerstones of the Chetney wave. I think now is the time to start branching out a little bit from that now because there was this really subversive stuff just hidden in there and the comedy, you know, in, in fantasy. 
there's some fascinating stuff, all the stuff that come back of her worked on. Yeah, it's definitely had a kind of a new lease of life, I think, in the last, yeah, 10 years or so. And and I guess this one reason why this film might have been confusing is I guess you have two great comedy stars doing like great kind of farcical business. And it, it's kind of challenging that distinction, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you know, you could say, well, it's Brechtian. But on the other hand, it's farcical. It's great physical comedy and it straddles that line. I read an essay on it last year by critics named Jesse, Jesse Jones and Ruth Nowak, and they wrote this really quite fascinating essay in the form of letters to each other. And this is this is in the, the book on Krumbakaba that was published last year, I think, in relation to that big exhibition of her work. And uh, that made one really fascinating point, I think, in regard to like the contemporary relevance, because it says that now, you know, since the pandemic and since we've had... Uh, that experience of spending a lot of time at home, kind of cultivating our, our private space under lockdown. You know, we have this film that's entirely spet, set in this self-cultivated domestic space. And so you could say it is a kind of like a, it's a sort of a lockdown film in a way, because it's all about this little private world, isn't it, really? And that's another <laughs> another thing that makes it relatable, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's genius. It's so well written and performed. Because it is so nuanced and so, like Mike said, we can sit here and talk for nearly two hours for a film that's only only a, over an hour. Because there is just they, the way that they use the comedy in these different ways where everything is really ambiguous. You're like, well, what are they saying with this? There's so much in there. And there is this tendency, I think, in the more intellectual circles that comedy is of no value. And that sort of thing. So it's like a lower thing. And then you see a film like this and you think this is just sublime satire and very, very cheeky and very, very subversive. I mean, even the eating scenes are like pornography. <laughs> They're just, you know, it's scandalous, really. But then you've got these two sort of well-known familiar faces playing out. Yeah, it's really, I think it's only like now that we can start to understand what she was talking about because this stuff hasn't been talked about stuff that women go through until very recently i think if my research is right there is and i want to say it's going on now i can't really tell because it's all in check but i want to say September 17th, 2023, there is a live performance of Killing of Mr. Devil that's being done on stage in Czechoslovakia, or sorry, Czechia. Actually, Jonathan, I'm going to drop this link in the chat if you want to see if you can read it better than I can. There's actually two that I found. They seem to be the same performance because it's the same actors. Yeah, it says... So, yeah, Sunday, uh, 17th of uh, September, 2023, at 8 o'clock, uh, the studio, which is like the Hero Studio, and it says staging of the, uh, it's like a staging that, that is playfully based on the literary script for the film Murder of Mr. Devil, which remains considered, or which is, which is considered the first Czech feminist film. So that's the... <laughs> wow, that's amazing. No, it is a truly a feminist film, but I think because of the way that she panders to him, it might not immediately register as such. I think now we can, we are getting to that point where we can take in that nuance. 
Whereas maybe 10 years ago, people would just thought, oh, she's just being a sap. She's just, you know. But yeah, feminism is changing, I think, what we think of as fa- feminist now. And those, yeah, I think there was a lot of rejection in in the sort of art house community. A lot of women or even actresses who didn't identify with feminism because and it's still an ongoing problem i think with mainstream feminism is quite often when we think of mainstream feminism we think of this very bourgeois middle class type of feminism that is very focused now for example on the idea of identity or career progression which doesn't really have a lot of resonance for say working class women or women from other cultures so there is this tendency i think for women to say they reject feminism whereas feminism can be many things and it's just recognizing that and a lot of these women were innately feminist because they were fighting for their own rights their own emancipation it's quite interesting we think of marlena dietrich is a feminist icon now but in that documentary of she did on the 80s she says really vile things about women's livers like she really didn't want to be associated with that because I think it conjures a thing, and especially the Eastern thing. I guess the Western women look very bourgeois and kind of had these luxury, um, sort of luxury beliefs and stuff. It might have seemed like quite alien to the fact that they were were not just focused on gender oppression, but political oppression as well makes it more complicated. But they were, both of those were asserting we're in this oppressive environment, but we are also women, so we have a double oppression. And they were doing it in a much more organic way, which I think is is beautiful. I think it's a beautiful thing. I, I think she said something in regard to feminism, and I guess the relationship to feminism by Krumbakavan Kitilova, it was never quite really clear because I guess the the I guess what they understood by feminism versus like i guess what it really is i mean it was it was uh, they probably had a maybe an understanding of western feminism that they tended to reject maybe but uh yeah exactly and i think oh well you know we could have these these films where we have women and they're not talking about men i'm duke burgundy is one of my favorite films of all time there's no men at all it's all in a in the universe where there are no men so men don't come up but in order to critique the culture, you do need to have women in position to men because that is how we're oppressed. So I don't know. I've never understood this, this idea of, you know, we'll have no men in it. How can we then criticize our relationship to men? You know, oh, well, we're providing good role models, but it's just a film. It's not life. If you really want to critique it, show women in actual real situations where they are judged against me, expose that. And that film does this so well. It shows this woman who is basically supposed to serve this very entitled man, or you could say it was all men, maybe, if he's the devil. I don't know what she's saying with that. But it, but it is exposing these like very subtle ways that women are controlled and, and self-police and, um, you know, it is just fascinating uh, because by the time you do get to that middle age point, you start to figure it out. You don't need a feminist manifesto to start to realise, hold a minute, this guy's full of shit. What am I listening to this? I don't need to listen to this now. So it is very much a, 
of that, in the spirit of that. And of course, in the last sort of decade or so, we've seen this like massive outpouring spiritual women's movement where women are tuning into this, you know. And Krumbakova was there in 1917, communist suppressed Czechoslovakia. I just, I find it fascinating, you know. It just shows we're not all really that different. But yeah, she she was totally doing this whole thing, same thing at the same time. It's beautiful. Yeah, I think there's something quite subtle about her representation of, of male and female relationships, isn't there as well? And she she said something to the effect that she said, she said, I'm very interested in men. That was like one of the, the comments that she 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 made. And, and, and she said, because men are just so complicated and they're just so weird. And so I think if we were looking at it in terms of that very kind of cut and dried, you know, attitude where we were sort of looking at, say, like the Bechdel test type of, of model where we were thinking in terms of, are there any conversations that do not involve men? I mean, I guess this maybe would not, I mean, well, this definitely would not, would not pass that. But I mean, it's all about turning that critical eye, isn't it, on the male character and exposing him through his absurdity. It's the fact that he talks, he talks so much and he talks so nonsensically, but that's the, that's the critique, isn't it? I mean, yeah, but the left can often be the worst for misogyny. They, they can. I think it's something when we talk about left-wing politics, we don't recognise the, the misogyny. And I've seen there's quite a few articles, for example, going around recently about Labour in the UK and the amount of misogyny within the, the Labour MPs. You know, we automatically think, oh, left-wing, therefore very progressive and feminist. No, they those, you know, the... The women and the left have had an interest in sometimes women's rights and the rights of worker left have converged. And so you've seen this working together. The times the left have also been just as oppressive as women. So it's interesting. I made the mistake when I first got into Czech film of taking it on face value and assuming because people like Esther Krumbakova work there, and Hitilova, that it was a much more progressive country. And then I started to listen to especially what Vera said, and I was shocked that actually, no, it wasn't. It was probably, you know, as sexist as, as Hollywood, you know, because they were f- facing complete... Well, we see it with Krumbakova. Why did she only ever get to direct one film? She directed so many other people's and gave it to the men. She served Mr. Devil, maybe <laughs> thing. You know, she let them take credit because that was the only way she, I guess she could work. The only one who ever gave her real credit was Hitilova. You know, always called them part. She always talked to uh, her as a, a close friend and a partner. Made that beautiful tribute film to her. Going back to that documentary, it's very ambiguous when they talk about how she died. And I was never able to find out, but it's kind of insinuated she committed suicide. Do we know how she died? There's like this really strange, ambiguous ending. And I could look to, I remember looking it up. How did Esther Krumbakova die? And I couldn't figure it out. But if you watch that documentary, there's like, I don't know. It's like they tiptoe around how she died. She was quite young when she died. They don't really talk about it. And I wonder if that was, she did commit suicide. I don't remember that. But yeah, it's the uh, same with me. It's a long time since I've seen that uh, documentary. 
Yeah, it's very ambiguous. And I remember going like down a rabbit hole after I saw it and thinking, were they alluding to her committing suicide? Because um, they don't really say, and they don't say that she had an illness. Right? It's just weird. It's just weird that it's almost as if they're tiptoeing around the fact that she died. It's it's strange. I can't remember the exact wording, but it was it was like, are they insinuating that she committed suicide? Wondered if you knew Jonathan because it's yeah. I mean, I've only ever heard that it was natural causes, but I think she was so young though as well, wasn't she? Like relatively young, and I don't know. I I, I think she did have problems with drinking. I think towards the end, that's what I've. Yeah, she, in the documentary, she's in the bar. She's drinking with the guys all the time, isn't she? And she's like quite. Feisty. So was it connected to that? Maybe, but you get a sense that it's, it wasn't quite, you know, this just peaceful, natural death. I think one thing that does come through in everything that I've like read about her and seen about her is that she was just an extraordinarily like charismatic and just compelling figure. And they say everybody that met her was just like spellbound by her. And they say that the conversation, it's a little bit like the, the comedian Peter Cook, where they said that the, th- the things he said in private actually even better than what he, you know, what he wrote and what he presented as part of his comedy. And I think similar thing where, you know, just to listen to her was as entertaining and as brilliant in terms of what she said as as the script. So, yeah, she just, just sounds like, a, yeah, as you say, uh, a kind of like a white witch, I guess. Yeah, somebody with just extraordinary magnetism. And That's how I connected to her work. I just felt, like you said, this extraordinary pull to her work. It felt very personal and I couldn't really explain it, but it, you're right. It's like this magnetism. I started to notice her in a lot of films that I loved. And then I started to think, hang on a minute, this is the same woman. I start trying to research her, which was r- quite hard. Even several years ago, I was really glad I came across a fan version of that documentary because even getting stuff on her, you'd have to like just do the Google Translate from Czech and it's not always that great. You're usually reading a page of gibberish and trying to figure out, is this saying? <laughs> is this saying this? Yeah, so so was it was this I don't know, this creative this creative call, like this was somebody who was very magical, had a very magical sense of of art, of creativity, a lot of burning there but a hell of a lot of transgression as well and also somebody of great integrity i think as well somebody who who had a strong sort of like ethical sense and didn't compromise tended to sort of do what she wanted to do she didn't kind of play ball with the wrong people and 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 so yeah you have this this combination of you know integrity and the sense of morality combined with this kind of occult quality and yeah it's just an absolutely winning combination i think (laughs) all right we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show right after these brief messages get mission impossible dead reckoning part one on digital today tom cruise stars in the film critics are calling the biggest and best action movie of the year buy mission impossible dead reckoning part one on digital today and go behind the scenes with incredible bonus content Available at participating retailers. Rated PG-13. From Paramount Pictures. 
Hey fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films, any cult film, every cult film. And it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today. What's going on? These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. And if you're a cult member, or you want to be a cult member, or you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member, tune in outside the cinema, baby, and you'll find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out. Starring Eleanor Campouris, Jeremy Piven, and Sean Astin, Vindicta is on digital now. When a city is terrorised by a sadistic serial killer, a seasoned detective and a newly recruited paramedic are forced into a deadly game of vengeance, where the key to stopping the bloodshed lies in unlocking the truth of their own haunted pasts. Vindicta. Get it from the Microsoft Store. Rated R from Paramount Pictures. Gauči preskaj pera a hraje tomu čes. Jen jednou bylo včera a jednou jen je dnes. Číšník bez tuzera je jak hladovej pes. Chrup se blízká tlaně pálí v městem dále sex. Ať si zblízka nebo zdále, tak se napij. Jen jednou bylo včera a zítra budem spát, kauči prasaj pera, tak říkaj máte rád. That's right, we'll be back again next week to look at Oldrich Lipsky's Four Murders Are Enough, Honey. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts Kat and Jonathan. So Kat, what have you been up to? Wow, I can actually say on this episode, it's all been Coffin Joe. <laughs> For Arrow, so we just uh, announced the the huge Coffin Joe box set for Arrow Video, which I co-produced, and that was basically my summer because it was insane. We've got, I think it's six discs, 11 films, something like we got 10 new video extras, about the same amount of archive extras, and it's like, I'm very exhausted, but I'm so glad it's out there now. It's like out in the wild and I couldn't tell anyone like I just tell everyone I'm really busy at the moment but I couldn't tell them why it's like no no this is a really big thing but I couldn't say so yeah all all good everyone should pre-order that and you know not to shill for Arrow but obviously these films were available before uh, talking about availability by something weird in the US I think it was wasn't it in Anchor Bay here the old Anchor Bay set and that's all you could see of those films. They weren't great restorations, but that's all we had. And I've seen the restorations and probably, <laughs> yeah, I think Coffin Joe's time has finally arrived. They, they look incredible. And Jonathan, how about yourself? So I have a couple of essays in, in books that should be coming out either this year or next year. So have a, an essay on Your I Hurts. That's going to be in a book called Barrendorf Studios, a Central European Hollywood. And that should be coming out next month from, this is, sorry, October 2023 from uh, University of Amsterdam Press. I also have a book on 
Czechoslovak cult cinema, which will be in a collection called Global Cult Cinemas, de-westernising cult film studies, which hopefully will be coming out next year at some point in 2024 from Bloomsbury. I also have a couple of commentaries for things that I think I probably can't announce just yet, but they will be on things that, if anybody knows me, it won't be a surprise, I think, the type of movies that, that those will be about. So hopefully those will be coming out towards the end of uh, 2023. Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. They're all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Lepší seněžený muž, nežli žádný muž, lepší seněžený muž, já to vím, láska není dřív, je jak padlý sníh, je jak postrej nůž a chce Yeah. <laughs>